Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. I want to get in it straight away because there's a lot to comment to, to comment on. I'm answering today. I did this broadcast on answering common questions concerning the last days, concerning the end times. Eschatological study. What's eschatology? Eschatology is the study of the end times. And why do we study the end times? Why should we even dive deep into the study of the end times? You know how many people, and not just people in the church, I'm talking about reputable theologians who avoid the topic of Bible prophecy for one reason or another. There are so many. There are notable uh, theologians in the reform, the Reformation area in the 1500s that avoided talking about Bible prophecy and the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel because they didn't really have the ability to fully comprehend it and to fully understand it, so they just stayed clear from it. And so, although I'm going to tell you at the onset of this broadcast, I by no means am doing this broadcast to tell you that I know everything about every symbol and every single scripture and verse that the end times has to offer. I am not. I I'm humble enough to say that I do not know that. I, there are far more educated people than I am that can dive into the depths of this study. However, I wanted to do this broadcast to cover basics, things that you can know. So there are a lot of things in the study of the end times that you cannot know. There's things that really we're going to have to wait and find out. Really, we're going to have to, we're going to have to find out uh, uh, at our own pace as we see these things unfold. Or after the rapture of the church, we look down from heaven and say, oh, wow, that's exactly what you meant when you talked about those horns. You talked about that, uh, the, the, the mouth of a lion coming out of a man or whatever the so there's certain things i'm not endeavoring to really give you a final answer on but there are certain core fundamental doctrines that are made very clear in the bible and that's what i want to tackle on today that's what i want to speak on today and so i've written down i think i wrote down seven common questions that i get referring to the end times that i get um the most the most often in my travels and things that I've read online, things that I've seen other people ask recurrently to other ministries and to this ministry. And so I wanted to take a full broadcast to dive deep into those seven common questions and to give you a biblical response. I don't want to just tell you what I think or give you my opinion or give you my view. I'm actually, through most of these questions, I'm going to give you differing views and differing opinions. And then I'm going to give you what the Bible says and why I believe this is exactly why it will take place or how it will take place or why I believe um, this specific viewpoint because there's a lot of controversy. There's a lot of differing viewpoints. There's a lot of opinions concerning most of these questions I'm going to talk about today. And so I'm going to give you those opinions. I'm going to show you what other people are thinking. I'm going to show you why it don't work that way because of obvious scriptures. And I'm going to show you why I believe what I believe. And I hope that we can agree on certain things. So if you're coming in, I know there's going to be certain things I'm going to talk about. You're going to say, I don't agree with that. I don't believe that. That's fine. We can get along. The, there's certain things that are not salvific doctrines that we're going to be talking about today. However, I want to help people, especially new believers, 
New believers and believers that are seeking for more. People that are, that are not satisfied with just having milk anymore. We want to have meat. We want to move on to leave the elementary principles of the doctrines of Christ and move on to, to perfection, the Bible says. Move on to maturity. And why do we want to do that? Let me read something that I came, came up in my spirit just as I was praying before this broadcast. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 25, uh, 45. And I'm going to read quite a bit of scriptures here. So listen, take heed. Don't just tune out. Listen to what I'm about to say. This, these are the words of Jesus. Matthew 24 starts off with Jesus telling the disciples that there's not one brick in the temple that will be left, uh, und that will be left standing after, um, after the Bible, he prophesied that it would be taken down, which happened in 70 AD. He's, and then they come on and say, well, when is the last days? What are the signs of the coming? What are the signs that you're coming soon? What will give us the indication? What are um, marking moments or marking events that will show us that you're coming back? And Jesus did not rebuke them for their curiosity in end time prophecy. There's a lot of people that are rebuked. The only answer some ministers can give people that are seeking for more truth concerning the doctrine of eschatology the only answer they give them is don't don't venture out in that you're going to get into error just understand no man knows the day or the hour and we should just be content in uh in keeping to our own lane keeping to our own lane keeping to our own our own tasks and assignments that god's given us and don't worry about those things they call those people pan millennialists that, that everything's just going to pan out we just hope everything's going to pan out and we know god's going to do it all perfect in his time so let's stay clear from this uh these doctrines let's stay clear from tapping into this part of the word of god because you're most likely going to get into error that's not true you can actually find jesus actually replied to the disciples saying uh he didn't tell them to don't venture out into there he didn't say you'll quench that curiosity he told them take heed take heed that no man deceives you for many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ and they'll show signs and there'll be rumors of wars and there will be kingdoms rising against kingdom. And he goes through this whole dialogue on what's going to happen. This, this huge portion of scripture dedicated to the end time events, things that will precede the second coming of Jesus Christ. But then verse 45, he concludes, he's beginning to conclude his statement by saying, what, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom when his master made ruler over his house to give them food in due season blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes will find so doing assuredly i say to you that he will make him ruler over all his house or all his goods but if that evil servant says in his heart my master is delaying his coming don't talk about end time things there's nothing we can do to change it so we might as well not do anything about it or preach it just stay clear from the doctrine of the end times don't talk about the last days don't mention eschatology events don't even dive into that part of the scriptures the bible says when that starts to get into people's minds they start to say my master's delaying his coming and they begin to beat his fellow servants so he got lackadaisical he got lazy he got uh, he, he got off track. He got off his assignment. He lost focus on the main game. And to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of the servant will come then on a day when he's not looking for him at an hour that he's not aware of him and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 25, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five of them were foolish 
And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. But at midnight, a cry was heard. And behold, the bridegroom is come, saying, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and for you, go rather the, to those who sell and buy for yourselves and while they went to buy the bridegroom came and those who were ready those who were ready pay special attention to that very scripture to those who were ready they went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut and afterward, the, Lord, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you, kneel, you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And I'm also going to read Matthew 24 and verse 44. This is a scripture that you should tattoo in your heart. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And so what Bible prophecy and the study of Bible prophecy in the end times does, I don't want to make this broadcast a broadcast that fattens your mind. Studying Bible prophecy is not intended to fatten your mind so you can have this great knowledge of scripture and be versed and be uh, intellectually built up. That's not the purpose of the study of the end times. The purpose of the study of Bible prophecy is to prepare your heart to be ready to meet the Lord so that you're a servant that when Jesus comes, you're found ready. You're found with your hand put to the plow and plowing in the harvest fields that's the purpose of this broadcast today i don't want you to be one of those that are lulled to sleep there are many christians that are lulled to sleep even in this time even in this day in this age by north american christianity where it's become a country club it's become a a sunday meetup point it's become solely for fellowship and networking and has totally abandoned what the purpose of the Bible is, what the purpose of the gospel is, what the purpose of the Great Commission has always been. It's not just so that you can get saved. It's not just so that you can be ready to meet the Lord, but that now we can be adequately equipped, be vessels for honorable use, useful and prepared for the master's good work that he asked for us. And so the way you prepare is by... One of the ways you can prepare is by studying end-time prophecy because it puts certain things in your heart that can't be put any other way. It puts an urgency in you. It puts a burning fire in you that this isn't going to keep on going on forever. There's going to be a day of accountability. There's going to be a day where we stand before Jesus. There's going to be a day where we're going to have to give an account for the works that we've done in the flesh, whether good or bad. And so Bible prophecy is not done. It's not taught to scare you. It's taught to prepare you so that you can get to work, so that you can, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, since everything, in talking about end time events, he talks about the thief, the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night in which the present heavens and earth will be consumed by fire and the elements of the earth will melt with fiery heat. But it says, therefore, since everything is to be dissolved, everything's going to be closed up. The end of the age will come it goes on to say peter says inspired by the holy ghost 
What manner of lives ought you to live in holiness and in godly conduct? And so studying Bible prophecy, it puts a, 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 an influence in your spirit to live pure, to have to carry personal purity, to keep a firm watch over yourself so that you're not, like Paul said, I, I keep a firm watch on my, over myself lest after I've preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. I can tell you my own personal testimony. When I was 11 years old, I remember I went to church till I was about like 12, 13. When I was 11, I, I was just, you know, I'd go through Sunday services and I just made it a point to read through the book of Revelation because it, it, it was fascinating for me. It was, it was uh, captivating to me. It caught my attention. And so I read through the book of Revelation as the preacher taught on whatever he was preaching. I, I didn't care much. I didn't listen much. But I I thought that the book of Revelation was fascinating. So I read through it maybe once, maybe twice at 11 years old through all those Sunday services that my parents dragged me to. And I'm so thankful that they did because had I not read that book of Revelation at a young age, I wouldn't have carried the fear of God and the understanding of what was to come throughout my teenage years. And so even though I was... Even though I was gone, even though I was on my own way to hell, even though I had detached from the covenant of God, even though I was living my own life, and if the rapture came, I know I would go to hell, there was this sense of conviction in my heart that these things were true, and that I didn't have forever to get right with God, and it put this sort of urgency in my heart. It put something in me that even though I was away from God, I knew that my waywardness would, would come to an end, would conclude one day, and one day I was going to get right with the Lord. It did something for me. Even though that's a bad understanding, you shouldn't carry that, men, that, that picture. You shouldn't carry that understanding. You should not carry that, that mentality is what I'm trying to say, that mentality that, you know, we understand this is all going to happen, but it's not happening yet, so let me do my own thing for now. And one, No, you shouldn't carry that mentality. But I'm trying to say is that through my teenage years away from God, I still carry this conviction and this fear of the events that were going to happen and so I remember when I was I was smoking up one day I was uh, you know we were out in some park one day and I, I, I was high as high can be and th it started to rain and I saw a lightning flash from east to west and I remember Jesus Jesus saying in Matthew 24 that as you see lightning flashing from east to west so shall the coming of the son of man be and the moment I saw that it struck fear in me. I like bad tripped immediately. I called home. And when I called home, my brother answered the phone. Now I knew my brother wasn't living right. So I didn't say, oh, oh, goodness gracious. Uh, thank God you're still here. I, I said, pass the phone to dad because I knew if my brother was still there, it meant nothing for me. But if my dad was still on the earth, if my dad answered the phone, picked up the phone and said, I'm here. What's up? I knew that I'd be okay. I knew that the rapture hadn't happened yet. So what did I do? I heard his voice. I didn't even say hi. I just hung the phone up. All right, we're clear. I'm good. It didn't happen yet. But just to, goes to show you that studying Bible prophecy put something in me at a young age that I carried the fear of God even though, even though I, I wasn't exactly right with God at that time. So what are three reasons why we should study Bible prophecy? What are the three main reasons why we should in, in, involve ourselves with the understanding of Bible prophecy. Number one reason is that almost one third of the entire Bible deals with Bible prophecy concerning Christ's first coming, concerning Christ's second coming, and concerning the other prophecies that the Bible 
uh, talks about the foretelling of events that have yet to come. The basic description of Bible prophecy, John 14, listen to this, John 14, 29. And now I have told you these things, Jesus speaking, before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. So Bible prophecy it separates the Bible from any other religious text because it's the only religious book that endeavors to foretell the future. Jesus said the purpose of Bible prophecy is so that he tells you things ahead of time so that when they do come to pass, we may know and believe that these things are so. Isaiah chapter 43, listen to what the Bible says in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43 and verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, and I have proclaimed. I have declared and saved, and I have proclaimed. Hold on, that's not the right scripture I'm trying to get. Isaiah 40, 43. It's not Isaiah 43. It is Isaiah 41. My goodness, why didn't I write this down? I have it somewhere in my notes. Give me one second. I know this isn't proper etiquette, but I want to read this scripture. Isaiah chapter... Let me write it on my phone. Forty-two. See, I was right in the middle. Isaiah forty-two. No, that's not it either. Isaiah forty-eight. Bear with me. I'm so sorry. Isaiah forty-eight five through fifteen. Now these are not it. Oh yes, here it is. Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol. My idol has done them. And verse 3 says, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. And, sure, and suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. So one-third of the Bible deals with pro Bible prophecy, and the Bible prophecy is, is a... a um, separation marker between the Bible and any other religious text. You see, there's many people that say that all, you know, pretty much all religions lead to the same place. All, everybody has their truth, but all truths lead to the same place. That's like saying all roads lead to Tux, uh, Tucson, Arizona, or all roads lead to Florida. It's not the, it's, that's, not, that's not the case. You can get on a road from Montreal and go until you hit northern Quebec, or you can get on the right road to Florida if you're going to Florida, and that's the road that will take you to Florida. And so not all roads lead to Florida. Not all roads lead to Tucson, Arizona. Not all planes, if you get on any plane, if you want to get to Australia, but you just get to the airport and present yourself to any plane, and get on any plane you want you're not gonna you're not guaranteed to get to florida or you're not guaranteed to get to australia and so the bible provides directions 
to truth. It, it is the truth and it provides us the direction to truth, to the knowledge of the truth. It's the truth that sets people free. It's the truth of the Bible that gives us the ability to navigate through life. And the reason why we know that the Bible is absolute truth and that it's inspired of God and it has the divine print on it is because the, there's 80, understand this, of all the prophecies of scripture, there's 80% of those prophecies that have been fulfilled. 80% of all the prophecies of scriptures, which there are 2,500 prophecies written down in the Holy Bible. 80% of those have already been fulfilled and to 100% accuracy. It's not like 80% of them have been fulfilled, but there's like a 60% accuracy. No, 80% of them fulfilled with 100% accuracy. And so as a result, we can logically conclude that the other 20% are going to be fulfilled with, guess what? 100% accuracy. And so by concluding that, by understanding that, and we're talking about prophecies concerning Christ's first coming. I've talked about this in other broadcasts. The, uh, the, the um, odds, the probability of every prophecy in the Old Testament concerning or referring to Christ's first coming being fulfilled to the T, to 100%, is the same as piling up quarters in the state of Texas up to your waist, then taking a silver dollar and putting it into, just randomly dropping it in, going on a plane and dropping that silver dollar somewhere in the state of Texas and then having someone start from Laredo, which is the southern part of Texas, and venturing out throughout the whole entire state of Texas, which by the way, quarters filled up to the waist and finding that one silver dollar that person would have more of a chance of finding that one silver dollar than of a man coming to fulfill every single prophecy referring to Christ's first coming. We're talking about his prophecies concerning where he would be born, prophecies concerning where he would spend his childhood, prophecies concerning where he would spend his teenagehood in Nazareth. He was in, in his childhood, he was in Egypt in his, in his uh, later days. His, early, uh, his later childhood and his early teenagehood and throughout up until he was 30 in Nazareth. The probability of someone fulfilling the, 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 um, his, his, his road to the cross, to the T, that he didn't just get nailed, he didn't, just get, he didn't get stoned, he didn't get nailed to like a metal pole, he didn't get um, thrown off a cliff. If that would have happened, Jesus would not have been able to fit the... The, the confine of scripture defining the, the, with the definition of who the Messiah would be and what he would ultimately come to fulfill. He had to be nailed on a tree. He had to be whipped at a whipping post. He had to be pierced through in his hands. He had to take a crown of thorns. He had to be bruised beyond recognition, beaten and scorned. All these things had to come to pass. All of them did come to pass to the T, 100% accuracy. And so we know that because those things were fulfilled with not 80%, not 90%, 100% accuracy, we understand that the last 20%, which we uh, theologians refer to as final or last Final Bible prophecy. The last prophecies of, by, of the Bible that have yet to be fulfilled, we understand that those, those will also be fulfilled in their time. So 
Number one reason why we studied Bible prophecy is because almost one third of the entire scriptures deals with Bible prophecy. I mean, God, including one third of prophecy in the entirety of the Bible, should show us something. It should show us that it's important to God. If God included that many um, testimonies of prophecy throughout the scripture, it obviously is not some side issue. It's obviously not something that uh, isn't important in the eyes of God. It's of utmost importance. If Bible prophecy is one-third of the entire Bible, then it would be foolish for us to ignore it or just uh, you know, deal with it once in a while. No, it should be a heavily discussed topic. Be like investing in a banker who's, uh, who's one-third successful. You wouldn't invest in that banker. Be like going to a surgeon who one-third of his medical education he failed miserably you wouldn't invest in that 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 doctor you wouldn't want to get surgery by the hands of that doctor one third is a huge chunk so one third of bible prophecy of, of the of the bible is bible prophecy it's a huge chunk it obviously means a lot to god number two reason why we should study bible prophecy revelation chapter one listen to this revelation chapter one and beginning with verse four Let, let's do beginning with verse three Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it for the time is near. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it. Bible prophecy and the book of Revelation specifically is the only, Revelation is the only book that carries a sworn covenantal blessing attached to it. It's the only book that begins with, if you study prophecy, if you study the words of this prophecy in this book, God will bless you for it. There is a blessing that is attached to studying Bible prophecy. Those who hear it, those who read it, and those who obey the words that are found in this book, God says he's going to bless you for it. There's a blessing. There's a tangible blessing. Not just peace in your heart. Not just joy. But a tangible blessing. It'll put a fire in your spirit to stand in the day of trial. And to be found enduring to the end. You know the Bible says not everyone's going to endure to the end. The blessing of studying Bible prophecy is the strength and the power that comes on you to endure and navigate these difficult days until the end. Number three reason why you should study Bible prophecy is Bible prophecy is a powerful tool for evangelism, evangelization of the world. I found in preaching Bible prophecy, in preaching on the end times, in the last days, I have seen more people come to an altar and preaching on Bible prophecy than any other topic of scripture. The man of God that I sit under in the ministry, his name is Evangelist Tiff Shuttlesworth. I'm actually going to have him on on Thursday at 1 p.m. He's our special guest this Thursday. He has given his life to over 40 years of studying Bible prophecy. And he's preached it all around the world and has seen over 500,000 decisions conservatively. He's probably closer to 750,000 now. But last I checked, he was about 500,000, over 500,000 conservatively decisions for jesus christ in preaching bible prophecy there's something that happens when you talk about end time events to the human heart because you remember ecclesiastes says he has written eternity in our hearts 
Eternity is engraved, embedded within the heart of every human being on planet Earth. And when you talk about last day events, I mean, even people that don't know the gospel, people that say they don't even believe in God, even they could understand that there's certain things that are transpiring on the earth today that don't seem right. Even people, I mean, there's a thing that you can look up on Google called the doomsday clock that are scientists and reputable scientists at that that have come up with this time frame of when the end's gonna, the, the world is gonna end. And if you look at it, the clock is at 11.59.59. There's like a few more milliseconds of time. We're at the final seconds of time. Even scientists that don't even confess to know Jesus Christ and don't even confess to know uh, a Bible prophecy, can un- they understand that things are coming to an end, things are coming to a close, and that... Time is running out. And so when you preach that, when you preach and give understanding to why these events are transpiring on the earth, you know, Luke 21. Let me read Luke 21. Luke chapter 21. Listen to this. Verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon, astrological signs in the stars. So that's talking about signs in the heavens. But then it goes on to say, and there will be distress on the earth amongst nations. There's going to be distress. There's going to be a lack of peace amongst the nations of the earth. There's going to be turbulence and with perplexity. People not being able to understand what's going on. The sea and the waves roaring. That's talking about natural disasters. That's talking about climate change. That's talking about uh, 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 natural phenomenons happening. Tsunamis larger than ever witnessed in the history of recorded uh, recorded uh, environmental disasters. The tsunami of 2006, that was the largest thing they've ever witnessed. It wiped out 300,000 people in Indonesia. A crazy event. Jesus says that these are signs of the times. And so scientists who have monitored this doomsday clock and are saying that we're approaching the end, they're taking this data they're taking environmental disasters and they're taking distressed among nations and viral outbreaks and all that they're taking that as data that is um and observations that they've done to conclude that humanity ain't gonna last much longer than it is right now but they don't understand why these things are so why these things are happening the bible gives you understanding These things are happening because Jesus prophesied they would be the signs of his return. Men's hearts failing them. That's talking about from fear. That's talking about excruciating anxiety. That's talking about handicapping. Handy... an anxiety that handicaps people. That's talking about debilitating fear that paralyzes people. That's talking about cardiac arrest as a result of distress and fear from the expectation of those things that are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the son of man coming in with great glory and power and when these things begin to happen look up lift up your eyes for your your redemption draws near verse 34 so why is bible prophecy a powerful tool for evangelism verse 34 but take heed to yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down so the ten the tendency the tendency And the human flesh is, when you're ignorant of these things, is to be weighed down. Your heart's going to be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness. Even people that, well, you know, 
if tomorrow we're dying, if the doomsday clock is at 11.59.59, what's the point of living? Let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, let's get drunk, let's sleep around, let's enjoy our lives, let's enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, because who knows what awaits us anyways, life's not that worth it, atheism talks about annihilism, when you die, you're going to die and just go back to darkness and to dust, so who cares about living a moral life, that's the, that's human, the human reaction to these things, but Jesus says, when you study end time prophecy, and you, and you understand that there is a great white throne judgment that awaits all humanity, that we're going to have to come before the God of creation, and the books are going to be open, and the Lamb's book of life is going to be open, and everyone's names who's not written in those books and the ones whose names are not written in those books are those who rejected Christ rejected the message of holiness rejected the message of righteousness and their names will not be found in the Lamb's book of life and as a result they will be cast into a lake of fire when you understand that Jesus said you're you're going to have power to take heed unto yourself, to keep a firm watch over yourself, to not be, to drown away in the noise of this generation you're not going to fall victim or prey to the carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. You're not going to be narrow-sighted or narrow-minded or near-sighted. You're not going to be blinded or focused in on the temporal things that are here today, gone tomorrow. But your attention will be on eternity. There's an old prayer that an old preacher used to pray. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs that I might live in light of it. For it will come, the end times will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch therefore, watch. So what happens when, you, when you're ignorant of the times, you end up sleeping. The disciples painted a perfect picture of this. They were in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. What happened? Jesus goes and prays. He comes back an hour later and they're sleeping. He says, couldn't you stay up one hour? Goes again. Comes back an hour later. They're sleeping. They kept sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. They didn't have strength to stay awake. They weren't alert. They weren't sober-minded. They were drowsy. They had fallen to the spiritual lullabies of those days because they did not understand that Jesus was what Jesus was about to accomplish. As a result, they were spiritually lazy and they fell into spiritual slumber so when you don't understand the times just like the disciples didn't understand that jesus was about to go to the cross you sleep you're you, you become indifferent you become apathetic you become lukewarm that's why jesus said to the book uh, to the church of laodicea i would that you were hot or cold because hotness and coldness cold water can satisfy thirst hot water you can boil water and you, you you can use it to cook things but if you're lukewarm lukewarm water that's where bacteria is lukewarm water is where there's infection it's where people you know that's where people would get sick by drinking lukewarm water because it it it, it, it that's where bacteria thrives in when it it fests in that long enough, it thrives in it. And so people would drink lukewarm water and they'd get sick in those days. Jesus said, I would that you were hot or you were cold. But since you're lukewarm, since you're full of bacteria, since you are so tainted by the desire for other things in this world, 
and you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. But he says, Jesus never diagnoses without giving you a solution. He didn't just say that. Many preachers, they just preach that, and they're just doom and gloom preachers. They tell people, you're lukewarm, you're good for nothing, you're going to hell. But I don't preach just one part of the gospel. I preach the full thing. I preach the full counsel. If you are lukewarm, Jesus gives us the solution. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Remember from where you've fallen. Go back to your first love. Do the things you did at first. Jesus said, as many as I rebuke, if you feel like you're lukewarm in your walk with God today. It's God knocking at your door. It's the Lord saying, now's the time to awake and be ready and to be to put on the full armor of God so that the, the days do not come on you as a snare as it will upon the whole rest of the world, but that you're found ready, you're found working, and your lamps are burning and your waists are girded with truth and your hands put to the plow. Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke. Therefore, be, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. How do you repent? Go back to your first love. Go back to what you used to do. Start winning the law. Start reading your Bible. Start praying and ask the Holy Spirit to put a fire in you. Be baptized again with the Holy Ghost. You know those five foolish virgins. They didn't have oil with them. They didn't carry Holy Ghost power and so they fell asleep. I pray right now as you hear this message, the Holy Ghost fire is going to come alive in you. I pray that the oil of heaven is going to be poured out on you. I pray that there's going to be a renewed zeal and a refreshed a refreshing in your spirit to not grow weary and well-doing, but to keep a firm watch on yourself and on your family to work the works of God who sent you while it is day, knowing that night is coming when no man will work. So number three, Bible prophecy is a powerful tool for evangelism. It wakes people up to the reality of eternity. It wakes people up to the reality of what's going on. It brings an understanding to the times in people. And it's a wonderful tool for evangelism. It gets people to encounter the reality of eternity in their hearts. And I tell you something, as being a preacher for just five years, I do a lot of Sunday morning services places, and the, the message that is the best to preach on a Sunday morning, that's where you get the lukewarm crowd most of the time. And uh, the message that the Lord lays on my heart many times to preach is the message of the last days because it ignites a fresh fire in people that have been lulled to sleep. Let me go through. So those are three reasons why we preach Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy pushes people to a point of, of, of decision. That's why we use it for evangelism. It gives people the understanding that, you know, tomorrow's not promised. Jesus can come at any time. And so get right with God. Bible prophecy pushes people bible prophecy pushes people to a point of decision it shows people that we don't have all eternity to get right with god that tomorrow's not promised jesus can come back at any time and so make today the day where you prepare yourself to meet the lord make today the day where you are ready to receive Christ Jesus when he comes back, that he's going to receive you to himself, that you're one of those whose garments are white and glistening. Let me go through, before I move on to the seven questions I have, let me go through simple a simple chronology of end time events. Because this is like, I know a lot of people, they, they want to simplify the book of Revelation. So here's a simple chronology of the book of Revelations. Understand this. One, 
Simple chronology of the end time events. Number one, right now, we are in the church age. So Revelation 1 through 3 is still in the church age. Jesus addresses the church, the churches, the seven churches, Laodicea, Philadelphia, uh, Smyrna, and all the rest. We're in the church age as it is right now. The church age began at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Ghost was poured out. The church age will end with the next event, the next prophetic event to be fulfilled. So number one, we're in the church age now. Number two, the next event to be fulfilled is the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. This is the close of the church age. Number three, event that needs to happen is the judgment seat of Christ. After the rapture of the church, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we will give, um, we'll give an account for everything that we've done in the flesh. This is the body of Christ being raptured up and I'm going to go through the rapture in, in more deeper details um, in, in this broadcast. But that is the, the... The rapture is the close of the church age. Number three, the judgment seat of Christ is the judgment of the church. We're going to be judged not by God, not at the great white throne judgment, but we're going to be judged by Christ for what we did with salvation. What did we do with the gospel message? Did we sit on it? Did we just make sure that we made heaven or did we use it as a... Did we use it to get other... Like a lifeboat to get other people into the kingdom of God. Number four thing that has to happen is the seven years of the great tribulation. So the moment the rapture happens in heaven, we're going to go through the judgment seat of Christ. But on the earth, there's going to be the seven years of great tribulation. Number five, which the great tribulation is the great trouble, the, the, the wrath of God being poured out on the earth, such as has never been witnessed in the history of mankind. Number five is the battle of, of Armageddon. This is how the Great Tribulation is going to conclude where all of Israel's enemies are going to line up against Israel. All the en enemies of Israel, all the ones that have sworn death upon Israel will finally line up against national Israel and make war against Israel, which leads me to number six, the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ will come and defend Israel and destroy the enemies of God on the earth. And the, the difference between the rapture and the second coming, people have, a, uh, they have a, a hard time understanding the difference. Here's a very simple way of understanding the difference between the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The rapture is Christ coming for His church. Jesus' feet never touched the earth in the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' feet never hit the Mount of Olives. Jesus comes back for His church and we meet the Lord in the air. The second coming of Jesus Christ is Christ coming with His church. So the rapture is come, Christ coming for His church. The second coming is Christ coming with His church. And that's where we will come behind Him on horses in garments full of white. And the Bible says Christ will destroy the Antichrist with His coming and uh, consume Him by the breath of His mouth. And we're going to come with Christ to make war on the devil and those that have allied with the devil... And uh, that'll conclude the Antichrist's reign on the earth. Number seven, what happens after the second coming of Christ? We will finally have the privilege of sitting at the table of God and enjoy the marriage supper feast of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb where all the saints will gather at a table where Christ and the his people, those that, whose garments are white, those who've been redeemed, the redeemed will finally partake. Remember Jesus said, I'll not eat of this meal until I come again. That's when we will eat the meal 
and we'll eat of the bread and we'll eat of the wine, drink of the wine and we'll, we'll close. Uh, it'll be the marriage supper of the lamb in heaven where we'll have a, an amazing feast. I'm sure it'll be a feast nobody's ever, ever even dreamed of before. Number eight, Satan is bound a thousand years. Number nine, where an angel will come and bind Satan for 1,000 years. Number nine, the kingdom age. This is where the millennial reign of Christ will happen. Christ will reign and rule on the earth for 1,000 years, and we will reign and rule with him. Number 10, Satan will be loosed on the earth for a, a time being, and he will go and gather up an army once more, and he'll actually surprisingly gather an army as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and will make war against Christ one last time. Number 11, the... He'll obviously, Satan will be bound. Number 11, great, the great white throne judgment. This is where the book of life will be open and the dead will be judged according to the deeds written in it. Number 12, and this is the culmination of the age. This is where eternity happens. This is where Satan is bound forever, cast into a bottomless pit. The church and sinners, uh, the church and saints, all the redeemed, will enjoy eternity with God. The Bible says there will be no sun in those days. Christ himself will give light to the kingdom. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth in which righteousness will reign. So that's just a quick rundown of the chronology of end time events. Let me go on to, um, let me move on to the seven questions I have written down. The number one question I have written down, and this is a question that I find, I put it number one because it's the one that goes mostly unanswered that even people that talk about Bible prophecy don't even talk about this, but I know it's one that's on many people's minds, and that is, is America mentioned in Bible prophecy? Is America, the great America, mentioned in Bible prophecy? Well, I'll give you the short answer, and I'll give you the longer answer. The short answer is America is never mentioned in Bible prophecy. There is no... You can search the Bible from Genesis to Revelation time and time again. You'll never come across the word, the name, the title, America. You'll never come across the nation called America or the United States of America or the Western nation of America. It's just simply not in the Bible. People generally who want to prove that America is in Bible prophecy, they use two scriptures. The number one scripture they use is Isaiah 18 verses 1 through 7. The reason why I'm addressing this is because America is such a large nation and such a dominant nation, and I preach that we're at the 1159.59, we're in the last seconds of, not the last seconds, we're in the last milliseconds of time, and every, the rapture is about to happen. I mean, if last year and a half didn't tell you that, I don't know what will and so because I preach that, many people say, well, you know, if Jesus were to come back right now, what would we do with America? The Bible doesn't even talk about America. The Bible doesn't even mention America in the book of Revelation. And America being such a massive nation, such a great dominant nation on the earth today, surely if Jesus were to come back right now and prophecy serves true, then it would have mentioned America. And so... That's why I'm addressing this. Isaiah 18 is the scripture people use to prove that America is in Bible prophecy. They talk about the land who, uh, the, the territory or the nation whose lands are divided by the water and a people who are feared far and wide, a powerful oppressive regime. Isaiah 18, one through seven talks about a land whose waters divide it. And they oftentimes refer that to the, the Mississippi River. They talk about the Mississippi River as the, the land whose waters divide it in two. But the reason why that's a fallacy and it's not true is 
the uh, Isaiah 18 passage is clearly referring to the land of Cush, and it even mentions the land of Cush by name. And so the land of Cush, if you study it, it is modern-day Sudan, so it's definitely not talking about the western nation of the United States of America. The number two scripture that is used is Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 13. Ezekiel 38 and 13. Let me read it. Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 13. The Bible says, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away the livestock and goods to take away great plunder. Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish. Tarshish is oftentimes referred to as the furthest western region, the furthest western nation. But Ezekiel 38 is referring to specifically to the nation of Spain because in those days, that was the furthest western nation. And so it cannot be talking about the United States of America because the writer, Ezekiel, in this he understood exactly what he's talking about. The merchants of Tarshish, which are mentioned throughout other prophetic books and other scriptures in the Old Testament. It's always referring to the furthest western nation in, in, in Europe, which was Spain, which were merchants. And they were known merchants. So that's why uh, those are the two scriptures that they use to prove that Bible prophecy includes America. But we can see why exactly that... Uh, that just not is that's just not so why doesn't the bible mention the united states of america there's four opinions so like i said today is a teaching we already established today is a teaching so if you expected big time preaching and all that i wanted to go through and cover these questions uh and inform people on things that boggle people's minds so why doesn't the bible mention the united states of america there's four opinions on this number one america this is the first viewpoint. America will still be a powerful nation, but the Lord chose not to mention her. This is possible, but very unlikely, seeing that America is so strong today, and if it, was, if it remained to be so strong in, in, in uh, the Revelation events, I believe and strongly believe that God would have mentioned America. If America maintains the same level of strength and... Um, dominance on the earth and political power then it seems illogical to me that god would not mention america in final bible prophecy john walward who's a notable student of eschatology says scriptural evidence is enough to conclude that america will just simply not be a major power in the last days the number two viewpoint is that America will fall from the outside before the end times, that there will be war raged, waged against America, against the United States, and the enemies of the United States of America will finally destroy America for what it is now, and it will come under the umbrella of some other nation. They will be, it'll be taken captive, it will lose its national sovereignty, and it'll come under the sovereignty of another nation that is mentioned in Bible prophecy. Number three viewpoint is America will have lost her influence due to moral and spiritual degradation, fall from within. So America will fall victim to moral degradation that because of the increase of all wicked deeds that are transpiring in America, that the sins of the nation will bring upon itself a curse that will ultimately wipe it out. 
so that it'll fall from within and that America will lose the um, <coughs> level of influence that it holds today, that other nations will rise to the occasion. Number four, and this is what I believe. Number four viewpoint on why America is not mentioned in Bible prophecy. Number four is America will become a third-rate nation overnight at the rapture. Now here's why I believe that. Think of it this way. When the rapture of Jesus Christ happens, the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ happens, America is by far the most Christian nation on the earth. America has the most Christians than any other nation on earth. And so if the rapture were to happen today, think of the economic disaster it would cause. All the workforce, the workforce would be depleted significantly. So that would cause a financial collapse. The stock market would crash. Think of, um, think of the, the, the millions of mortgages that would go unpaid as a result of the rapture happening. All the Christians that had mortgages and owned homes, they won't be able to pay all that. All that land's going to be freed up. Think of the, um, the stock market crashing and the workforce being depleted to such an extent where factories, work factories, have no more people. There's, there's, you know, they just lost 25% or 30% of their workforce. Companies are going to crash. Strong American companies are going to crash and not be able to sustain themselves or survive. All the airplanes and modes of transportation that have drivers, cars, all of a sudden, the driver of the car gone. The accidents, the airplanes, all of a sudden having no more pilot and the, the, the planes crashing into big cities, skyscrapers. What happened in 9-11 happening on every major city because planes just falling out of the sky. If you've ever seen a map of air travel on any given hour of any given day, it is incredible how many planes are over your head right now. Are, are, are navigating through airspace right now. And then think of it this way. Because America's predominantly Christian, there's, there's many Christians, people that confess Christ that are going to make the rapture, America is going to be depleted to such a level that it won't be able to compete with Islamic nations and other nations that don't have that level of Christianity in it. Think of it, all the Islamic nations, all the Middle Eastern nations that don't have a dominant Christian population that are going to relatively go untouched by the rapture. They're going to be the most powerful dominant forces on the earth. Atheistic nations, Europe at large has become, uh, they call it a post-Christian post era. Many Europeans do not confess Christ any longer. So Europe is going to rise to the occasion. They're going to rise to the top, whereas America, Canada, are most likely going to uh, lose the, 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 the wind behind their sail. And so as a result, I believe, because of America totally being depleted of this Christian, pre Christian presence, that it'll have no choice but to fall under the Antichrist's confederacy that he will form, the ten nations in Europe, that they'll have no choice but to join in in the Antichrist's uh, kingdom and rule and succumb to his, his, um, his government. The USA 
In conclusion, this is what I mean by all this. In conclusion, the end time focus is on Europe and the Middle East, not America. So USA will most likely fall under the Antichrist alliance and join the superpower of the nations that he's going to erect in his day. So number one, is America mentioned in Bible prophecy? No. And why is it not mentioned in Bible prophecy? The viewpoint that I hold to the most is that at the rapture of Jesus Christ, America will, will fall. Because of the amount of Christian presence in this nation, it won't be able to hold up. And as such, when the Antichrist rises, it will join the confederacy that he will form an ally with the Antichrist and lose its national sovereignty. Number two question that I get the most is what is the super sign that we're in the end times? There are many signs I went through before. I talked about the signs of um, earthquakes and various natural disasters that will occur. Matthew 24 says earthquakes in various places. Luke 21 says the seas roaring and the waves roaring and crashing that's talking and the, the distress amongst the nations and perplexity that's talking about natural disasters and things that will happen environmentally in the last days other signs of the end times daniel 12 4 says that there will be an increase of knowledge on the earth in, uh, knowledge has it used to be that knowledge would double in like a thousand years then it went from 1950 to like uh, sorry, 1750 to the 1900s, knowledge doubled. In 150 years, it took that knowledge would double. Then from the 1900s to 1950, knowledge doubled. So then it took 50 years for knowledge to double. Then from 1950 to 75, 25 years, knowledge doubled. From 1975 to 2000, from, to, to 1990, knowledge doubled. Then from 1990 to 1995, knowledge doubled. When they started the computer era, a computer mainframe took a full room to fill up. They would have full rooms dedicated to a computer's mainframe that had like 36 megabytes of storage. Now, on this little iPhone of mine, I can fill up, I think this one's like 64 or 128 gigabytes, something like that. 128 gigabytes. There are, this little USB stick I have right here has uh, two terabytes or one terabyte of information stored on it. A terabyte, which is a thousand gigabytes. We went from having to fill up whole rooms to, fill, to get like 36 megabytes to now we have little tiny one and a half inch devices that can fill up a thousand gigabytes of knowledge and information. Look at, you can look at air travel. We had to take a horse and buggy. Then you moved on to a Ford coming up with the car, the vehicle that, you know that there was a guy that said that he was, um, I think it was Isaac Newton that said one day, that man will discover scientifically and technologically the ability to travel at speeds of up to 50 miles an hour. And Voltaire, who was a, a philosopher, an atheist philosopher, but a philosopher nonetheless, of his day said that would never happen and, uh, and ridiculed the guy. Well, obviously today we have... Vespas that can go 50 miles an hour, let alone vehicles. We have planes that can travel at six, seven, eight hundred. Commercial planes, six, seven, eight hundred miles an hour. You have you have uh, super jets that can hit Mach one, the speed of light, uh, the speed of sound. You have jet. You have um, uh, spaceships that Elon Musk is designing that he wants to reach Mars in the coming years and actually actually produce round trip round-trip tickets to Mars and back. 
So you can see that technology has rapidly increased in these last days, where now it's not ever, it doesn't take 25 years for knowledge to double. It doesn't take five years for knowledge to double. It takes like three to six months for knowledge to double. And we're having these massive scientific technological advancements in three to six months every single year. There are these notable advancements in technology. Another sign of the end time is moral degradation. The Bible says, in the last days, many will fall away from, uh, from the faith. They will depart from the faith. That's referring to Christians leaving Christ, Christians departing from their position of redemption and going back into the world. Well, if we know there's going to be an apostasy within the church and a falling away within the church, whatever happens in the church affects society. There will be a societal downfall, moral degradation on a societal level. The Bible says in the last days, men will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Matthew 24, 12 says lawlessness will increase in the land and the love of many will grow cold. Romans 1 talks about God giving people over to a depraved mind to believe the lie and give themselves over to vile passions. Another sign of the end time is the pestilences increases, viral outbreaks, uh, deadly diseases running rampant in the, entire, in the entire world, not just in little select few pockets. We're talking about world, world viruses, world viral outbreaks. And we saw that in the last year and a half. Pestilence increases. Deadly viruses increasing on the earth. Number five uh, sign that I've written down is famines, economic disaster. Famines and droughts. And uh, stock markets crashing and all, all, all sorts of things. Seven signs of the end times is the temple being rebuilt. This is huge. The temple being rebuilt, rebuilt is a huge sign of the last days. And up until recently, there was no plans drawn up to rebuild this third temple. Because, you know, in order for the Antichrist to sit in the temple of God, there has to be a temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And there are, not only are there plans drawn up for the temple to be rebuilt, all of, it's almost like, do you know those ready homes? That they can ready somewhere and then transport it into another place? Or they can, they can pretty much just... Um, uh, they're called uh, prefabbed homes, that all the parts and the pieces are prefabricated. You just got to put them together. Well, the temple is being prefabricated as we speak. All the articles of gold, all the, the, the artifacts, all the, 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 the cups that the priests had to drink out, all that is, is already ready. They've already fashioned them from gold. Um, they even have a heifer which is the eighth sign that I wrote down, the red heifer that needs to be sacrificed uh, every year. They have to have a red heifer back in the Levitical law. They have to present a red heifer that was pure, that had no spot, no blemish. The red heifer, understand this, from the destruction, the desolation of the temple in 70 AD, there has not been a perfect spotless red heifer that has been born. And they have a temple society in Jerusalem that has one of their objectives is to breed a spotless red heifer. And for th- hundreds of years and thousands of years, they, since 70 AD, they have not been able to breed a red heifer, which is like a little mini cow almost. Until recently, in, I think it was 2017, a red heifer that had no spot and no blemish that was authenticated by leading Jewish rabbis was born. In 2017 or 2016. And that's a huge prophetic, uh, a huge prophetic 
there goes Judah. That's a huge prophetic event that had to take place. Because even if the temple had gone up, if they don't have a red heifer, there can't be any sacrifices done. And the Bible says that the Antichrist will actually let the Jews sacrifice appropriately for three and a half years. But on the third and a half year, he's going to desecrate the temple. That happened in 2016. The temple being rebuilt is... That's our, the temple society already has every piece, every single aspect of that temple prefabricated that they can literally erect this temple in no time. The moment they get, the reason why it hasn't happened already is because the temple mount wherein it sits has the Dome of the Rock, which is a, a Muslim holy site, already erected on that site. And then there's this other, there's this other, uh, establishment that's on the site where the third temple is to be erected they don't want to just put it up anywhere it has to be where the first and the second temple were and so everything needed to build it up is already been made and so they can literally erect this thing in no time they're just waiting for uh for the go-ahead to do it but what is so i said all that those are all signs of the times but what is the super sign that we are living in the last days. Many signs can signal that these are truly the end times. However, there's a super sign that brings us to an obvious conclusion that there's no mistake about it. We're in the last days and Christ can come at any time. And that is the regathering and restoration of Israel in the last days, which is prophesied throughout the scriptures by many prophets. Isaiah 43, listen to this, and I have this scripture right this time, so you won't have to wait long. Isaiah 43 and verses 5 through 6, listen to this. Fear not, for I am with you. This is God prophesying of the restoration and reestablishment of the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, that Israel would regain its national sovereignty and that Jews that had been scattered in 70 AD, remember all the Jews, the diaspora, were scattered throughout the four corners of the earth. So you have Jews in New York, you have Jews in Poland, you have Jews in Italy, you have Jews in Canada, you have Jews in literally in South, South America, you have Jews in Australia, you have Jews all over the place. And they were scattered but May 14th, 1948, Israel, after World War II, regained their national sovereignty and the land of Israel was redistributed back to the Jewish people and they now had claim to that land. They now possessed the land, not the entirety of the land that God promised Abraham, it's far less than it, but it's still... It's still a large chunk of the land that God promised Abraham in Genesis. And so in 70 AD, they get scattered. But listen, God said in Isaiah 43, Fear not, for I'm with you. I will bring your descendants from the east, and I'll gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, Don't hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. That's talking about God putting a hook in the mouths of His people and bringing them back to the Holy One. Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 3 is a second prophecy of the restoration of Israel to their land. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. Ezekiel chapter 37, everybody knows it, where Ezekiel prophesies to the dry bones to live again. Well, what was that? That wasn't just, 
you know, a scripture that we can use now to prophesy revival in our own nations and stuff, although you could use it for that, and I've used it for that. But the, the, the um, primary purpose of that scripture was uh, f- for the prophetic fulfillment that would take place in the last days when Israel would, would come back to the Holy Land. Listen to this, Ezekiel 37, 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and I will bring you back into the land of Israel. Israel, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Matthew 24, 32 to 35, Jesus says, when you see the fig tree bud again, you can know that my return is near even at the door. And this generation that sees this take place will by no means pass away until all things take place. Referring to the culmination of the age. Anyone that heard Jesus say, when you see the fig tree bud again, they understood that he was referring to national Israel. The fig tree was always symbolic of the nation of Israel. And the budding again referred to its reestablishment and its regaining of national sovereignty. So when Jesus said, when you see it, but again, remember Isaiah 66 says, can a nation be born in one day? Can a nation come forth in one day? That literally happened and was fulfilled in May 14, 1948, when Israel was born in one day. They regained national sovereignty and the rights to their land in one day when the land was signed over to them by the United Nations. Jesus said, when you see that happen, know that my return is soon, even at the door, and the generation that, ta- that sees it take place will by no means pass away until everything else takes place. That shows you that when Israel regained its national sovereignty, it was like the gun of God's prophetic agenda for the end, ta- end days was cocked back. And the, the hammer of the end time gun was cocked back and the trigger is being pulled like there's nothing else that is the last that is the super sign that is the final event that needed to happen before the rapture of the church takes place and it happened in 1948 and so if you want to go with a uh generation bible times could go anywhere from 40 to 120 years let's say it is 120 years knowing god i would say it is 120 years 1948 plus 120 is 2068 i'm not setting a date i don't do date setting i'm not doing uh i'm not saying here's the day here's the hour but i'm saying if we are to say a generation will not pass away until these things take place then and 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 that clock started in 1948 then we can know that there's not much time left. That is the super sign that demonstrates that we are in the last days. Number three question that I get the most is, what is the rapture and when will the rapture take place? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 to 18 describes the rapture. This is like the golden verse of the Bible concerning the rapture. Verse 13 says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a cry, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first 
And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be always with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. There's many people who criticize the doctrine of the rapture wrongfully because they say things like there's no word for rapture in the Bible. And I agree with you. There is no word for rapture in the Bible. Just like there's no word for trinity in the Bible, yet I believe in the divine trinity. And there's no word for immaculate conception in the Bible, yet I believe in the immaculate conception. And there is no word for Bible in the Bible. The word Bible is not even mentioned in the Bible. And yet I believe in the Bible and the inspiration of the scriptures. So just because there's no word for it in the Bible does not mean we don't have a basis to build a doctrine on it. The Bible says in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that, or verse 17, sorry, that those who are alive and remain will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air and so shall we be with Him always. Caught up is, if you study the Greek word, is harpazo. And the Greek word harpazo means or signifies the snatching away or the catching away or to be seized forcefully and imminently, to be quickly taken, to be quickly snatched up. And so though there's no word for the, the, the word rapture is not in the King James Version of the Bible or the NASB or the ESV or whatever Bible you're reading right now. It does not mean that the meaning of the word rapture, which where do we get the word rapture from? The Latin Vulgate was translated, uh, translated the, the Greek Septuagint of the Bible into Latin, which was the, 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 the language of that day. And the word in Latin for harpazo, which is the catching away, is rapturo. Rapturo, which is where we get our word rapture, which, is, uh, which signifies the calling away of the saints or the catching away of the saints. And so just because there's no word for rapture in the Bible does not mean that rapture, the doctrine of rapture is not a, uh, a significant doctrine and not a, a verifiable doctrine. And I also want to say, this was interesting. I was studying on this, and this I, find, I found to be incredibly interesting, that there's three cries of Jesus in the Bible. The first cry is when Jesus cried out Lazarus' name in John chapter 11. When he cried Lazarus' name, the Bible says that Lazarus came forth. There was a resurrection of the dead. The second cry that Jesus made was when he cried um, on that cross, his last words, it is finished. When he said that, the Bible says there was an earthquake and the dead that were in the tombs rose, rose back to life and they actually were in Jerusalem for some days. There were people that were dead in the tombs that rose back to life. There was a resurrection. And the third time Jesus cries in the scripture is when he descends. The Bible says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a cry, with a war cry. And that will... Um, quicken people's bodies that are in the grave right now all your dead loved ones all those that died at sea all those that died at land all those that are buried all those that were even cremated people say if my loved one was cremated will they make the rapture will they be will they make heaven or did their cremation pretty much solidify the eternal damnation absolutely not god who can do anything he can i'm not saying Go ahead and cremate your relatives and all that. I'm just saying if your relative was cremated, it does not mean that they're going to hell. It does not mean that they are not going to be res resurrected. God can bring particle to particle. He can, even if the ashes are scattered in the ocean, He can bring all the particles back together. I'm not saying I condone cremation. I, I do not. However, if it, 
means, you know, to soothe your conscience right now. Because I believe there's some people that they think, well, we cremated my, ref my relative, they're probably in hell, even though they believed in Christ. No, the prerequisite to making heaven and the rapture is not whether you were cremated or buried. It was, did you place your faith in Jesus Christ? So what are major views on the, on the rapture? There are four major views on the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we talk, we, we've clearly seen that there will be a catching away of the saints. When that happens is based on what view you, you hold to the most. Number one is the pre-tribulation rapture. This is the rapture happening before the tribulation of, of, the, uh, of the great tribulation of the end times, the seven years of great tribulation. There is a, number two, the mid-tribulation. The mid-tribulation is it's going to happen after three and a half years. Number three is the post-tribulation, which is after the tribulation, the rapture of the saints will happen. And then number four, which I found interesting, was a partial, partial rapture, which is when uh, they believe, which I, I absolutely do not hold to this view, that the faithful believers people that were winning the loss, people that were involved in evangelism and that uh, every time the church doors were open, they were there, they're going to be raptures. And then the other believers that weren't so hot on fire for God will have to go through the Great Tribulation. That I do not believe in whatsoever. What I'm going to focus on the most is pre-trib and mid. Uh, pre, post, and mid. Um, Pre-tribulation is the rapture happening. Before the tribulation, post-tribulation is after the tribulation, and mid-tribulation is in between the three, after the three and a half years of peace, the moment the Antichrist turns his tune and reveals his ugly nature that God would rapture, Christ would rapture his church. Now, I hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, and here is why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Here is why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Number one. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation from chapters 1 through 3 deals with the church age. Many times, God, through Christ, Christ is addressing, addressing His church. Talks about the church of Laodicea, talks about the church of Philadelphia, talks about the church of Ephesus. He talks about the church ages, the seven church ages. And He makes it very clear of his message towards the church. The moment Revelation 4.1 starts, here's how Revelation 4.1 starts. This is what the Bible says. After these things, so after what? The church age, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. John, which was uh, a type of, or the symbol of the redeemed church, the Bible says, after Revelation 3, he heard a voice saying to him, and as he looked up, there was a window opened in heaven, and a voice saying, come up here. That is where I believe the rapture of the, Lord the, rapture of the church of Jesus Christ takes place. Why do I believe that? Because from Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation 22 and verse 16, there is not one mention there is not one mention of the church of Jesus Christ. There is not one mention of the word ecclesia throughout the entire book of Revelation from Revelation 4 to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. 
And so, anytime God gives a prophecy concerning the church, there's a concerning a, 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 an event or concerning a, 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 a thing that must transpire on the earth, if the church is present or if his children are present, he always includes a plan for his body. In this time, he doesn't include. There's not one mentioned. There's, there's absolutely no uh, evidence of the church's presence on the earth through the entirety of Revelation 4 to Revelation 22. The number two reason why I believe. So Horo and Coffee loves, he's opening up his mouth and saying that there's, uh, again, a 19th century invention. If you dig deep into the teachings of Christianity, you won't find any bit of the belief until the mid-1800s. That raises a red flag. Glad you brought that up. You're actually going to help me today. Do you understand that the doctrine of salvation by grace was not held to from the year 200 BC, uh, AD to the year 15, 16, 1560, I believe it was, AD? From the, year, from the 200s AD to the, to the 1600s, they didn't believe that you could be saved by grace, that you had to work for your salvation. So, are we going to hold to the viewpoint now that salvation by grace through faith alone is heretical? Because for 1,500 years of church history, they didn't, they didn't believe in that? They didn't hold to that? Secondly, I'll address it, Polycarp, who was the disciple of John, who had the revelation believed in the rapture if you study his writings he talked about the snatching away of the church before the great trial that would hit the earth and he was john's uh, uh, john's very own disciple polycarp believed in that and many other church early church fathers i'm not talking about john calvin and joseph Ar 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 arminius i'm talking about early church fathers that believed in the snatching away of the church before, before the great tribulation uh, occurred. You see, horror and coffee, I love people like this because they have a computer and a keyboard. And they think that they can go out and just like, you know, now I have a point of influence. Now I have a voice. Let me get out my voice. If you have your own opinion and you have your own different point, that's fine by me. But go and start your own YouTube channel and go and persuade people that want to believe you. Outside of that, leave these people alone. They're just trying to sit and listen and learn. Secondly, secondly, you you haven't addressed any of your you haven't addressed any of your viewpoint on the situation or on the doctrine of what, how you stand whether it be mid or post tribulation all you've done is just say no that's not true that's not true that's not an argument my brother that's not an argument people are so funny the second reason why i believe in a pre tribulation rapture is the removal of the the restrainer as spoken of in second thessalonians chapter 2 listen to this second thessalonians chapter 2 
and horror and coffee, if you believe in the post-tribulation rapture, as your faith is, so be it unto you. You stay, I'll go, I'll see you in seven years. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. This is what the Bible says. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all, above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know that what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, will do so until he's taken out of the way. And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Bible says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is the he of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? I'll tell you who the he is not. The he is not human government. The he, people think that until human government or human laws is taken away, that one day there's going to be like total anarchy that hits the earth and that's when the Antichrist will come. That's not what it's talking about. The he of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is not the Holy Spirit because if the Holy Spirit were taken away, he would cease to be God because God is omnipresent. He's omnipresent and as such, if, if he were taken away, he would cease to be God. God is everywhere and God is at all times. And God is everywhere at all times. And the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father and just as much God as God the Son. He's God the Holy Spirit. The number three view of who the He is in the restrainer of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is an unknown heavenly being, that there's some sort of heavenly being in the heavens that's holding all these things back. That cannot be so because there's no other scripture that alludes to that. Who I believe the restrainer is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit working in His church. So it's the Spirit-filled church that... Until the Spirit... For, now this is going to bring you much confidence and it's going to give you much encouragement and it's going to help you um, even understand. Even understand your, uh, your, your dominion as a believer over the forces of darkness and over the forces of hell himself. Because the Holy Ghost lives in us and 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that lives in us than he that is in this world the Bible says, I have given you power over unclean spirits to cast them out and over all the power of the devil and nothing shall by any means harm us because the Bible says, know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that God's Spirit dwells in you whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are, you, you are, not your own. You were bought with a price. Because of that, Satan himself, the Antichrist, could not even reveal himself right now because all it would take is one little church grandma who's a prayer warrior who understands her authority in Christ to march her way to wherever the Antichrist is and cast him out of that human body and he'd have no ability to express himself any longer. So just a basic understanding of your authority as a believer shows you that we are the spirit-filled church, the restraining force against the Antichrist rising in our day.
Jesus called us the salt and the light. Salt holds back decay and light holds back darkness. I mean, that should bring you much encouragement because it shows you that the devil's greatest agent, who's the Antichrist, the beast that will rise from the sea, he can't even set up his own work on the earth until we're gone, until we leave, until we, we, we are taken off the earth. Because his power is no match in comparison to the power of the Holy Ghost-filled church. He can't, can't, he can't compete. There's no competition. Jesus said we are to occupy on the earth until he comes. And then he'll take us up off the earth. And then the, the Antichrist can occupy and he'll dominate for seven full years. But until we leave, he can't even enforce his plan to world, world domination. We're, the Holy Ghost in his church is the restraining force. And that's another reason why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Because if the Antichrist were to reveal himself right now, I'd march my way to him, cast that spirit out of him, and he'd have no ability. I'd bind all his, his work. I, he, wouldn't be, he would have no ability to implement his demonic, his demonic plans and programs for, for, for that generation. So it would be impossible for light and darkness to dwell fully on the earth at the same time. Number three, why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is the believer is exempt from wrath. Anybody that believes in a post-trib or mid-trib rapture, especially post-trib, they have absolutely no idea about the love of God for His people, for His church. I want to read to you several scriptures that show us. First and foremost, you have to understand what the Great Tribulation is. The Great Tribulation is, read it from Revelation 6 on, I think, through 19. It talks about the vials of God's wrath, the seals of God's wrath, God's wrath, God's anger, God's, um, God's judgment being poured out towards a wicked, rebellious world. And so, because we understand the tribulation, the great tribulation to be that way, and now people say, well, you know, there's always been tribulation. There's people persecuted all across the world. First of all, the great tribulation is not the great persecution. The great tribulation is the great wrath of God being released on planet earth against a rebellious, wicked, against the rebellious, wicked world that is on the earth at that time. It has nothing to do with persecution. Yes, there will be the saints that are saved during the, the people saved during those days that become saints because of the 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists that will be released on the earth that will have accepted Christ as Messiah after the rapture takes place. They'll have their eyes open and they will have an evangelist. There will be an evangelistic revival during those days. Many will come to the Lord. The Bible says a multitude will stand as saints, during those days, they'll have their robes made white. Those who refuse the mark of the beast. Howbeit, howbeit, those are not, that's not talking about the saints that were made right with God pre, pre-tribulation. Those that were raptured up. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. So, now that we've established that the tribulation is the wrath of God poured out on the earth, let's read, let's read what Paul had to say about that. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned from God 
to serve the living and true God. How you turn from, sorry, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of Christ. Who delivers us from the wrath of Christ? See, Horror and Coffee goes off and says, if Polycarp indeed taught pre-trib rapture and then the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, isn't that weird? Are we cherry-picking? Okay, do you know that John Calvin... Um, do you know that, actually we'll go with Martin Luther. Do you know that Martin Luther, and actually most of the reformists, and the people that most of the reformed people today idolize and read about all the time, all their books, which I, you know, I read their stuff, they have good stuff, but do you understand that they were mostly um, anti-Semites? That Martin Luther, who gave us the revelation of, um, by grace through faith, that we are saved, that sola, sola gratia, so only grace can get you saved and into heaven, also wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies and literally and literally came out and, and talked about how the Jews were the problem of his generation. So just because somebody really went off in some places doesn't mean that their, their entire doctrine is, is, is terrible. There are, so you can't use that, that argument. You can't use that argument. And you haven't showed me one persuasive argument. All you're saying, I'm sorry you see it that way. Great. Tell me why I should see it other ways. I'm not somebody that just reads my own view. I've studied the different points of view. And they've none of them line up with Scripture and the entirety of Scripture. And all you can say is, sure I can. Sure I can. You know what you are? You're a guy who probably goes to Starbucks. You have your little latte. And you love to read books on the Bible. And you love to read books that describe the Bible. And you've had people paint your own point of view. And you have zero perspective on your own. You've been told how to believe. And yet you haven't dived into yourself. Hard to do a thread that has a limit. The Bible says a wise man spares his words. If you have wisdom, you don't have to have 200 words per comment. 200 words is far too much. If you have a point that's provable, I can point any one of these points. I can prove any one of these points in less than 30 words. Because they're provable and they're doctrinally sound as from Scripture. So, anyways. The believer is exempt from wrath. The Bible says in verse 10, why I believe in a pre-trib rapture, Pre-tribulation rapture, the scripture says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Number two scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number three scripture, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those that are on the earth or that dwell on the earth. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. This is what the Bible says. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Tell me, if you have a brain and an IQ that is higher than the room temperature in any given, given room. If the great tribulation is the wrath of God, 
And the Bible says he has saved us from wrath. He has preserved us from wrath. You will be kept from the hour of wrath and trial that shall come upon those that dwell on the face of the earth. If I'm not destined to wrath, but to, to, I'm appointed to obtain salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ, when he, the chief shepherd, appears, the Bible says we are those who will not draw back to perdition, but to we will rise and believe to the saving of the soul. If we're not, our portion is not wrath. If we're not destined for wrath, why is it? Why is it that we would stay throughout those seven years that the Bible doesn't say are going to be bad? It says there won't be another, his, another time. There's never been another time in history and there'll never be another time in history that compares. If you thought Hitler's rule was, I'm sure there's nobody watching that were around then, but if you've read history and you've seen Hitler's rule and you thought that was bad, what he did to people in his day, what the Antichrist will do in three and a half years when he reveals his ugly nature, after the three and a half years of peace, he'll set up. You, you, you don't even know what's awaiting you. And then you have to look at the character of God throughout Scripture. First of all, God's not a child abuser. He's a loving God. He's not out to break people down. He's out to build people up. And if you study Genesis, when God was about to send flood on the earth, what did he do with Noah and his family? They were preserved from the wrath of God's judgment on the world of the ungodly. They were spared from it. Go and look in Lot's day. God sending judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's about to rain fire and brimstone. What did God do before he'd released judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? He released an angel to do what? Which the Bible says in Matthew 13, the angels are the harvesters that are going to harvest the good seed, the seeds of wheat which represent the sons of the kingdom. They're going to be harvested at the ends of the ages and we're going to be caught up. And then he says, I'm going to take the, the tares, the wheat, that represent the sons of the, the wicked one, the sons of the devil. They will be bundled up and they will be burnt by fire, which refers to the fire of God's judgment invading the world of the ungodly in the seven years of tribulation. When Lot was in Sodom, God did not send fire. Lot was taken out of Sodom, which was a type of a rapture, and then judgment came. The nature of the tribulation period is God pounding His wrath against a rebellious world. And the Bible says in Proverbs, Thou shalt not strike the righteous because of their uprightness. Don't strike the righteous because of their uprightness. You think God's a hypocrite? He takes his own advice. If he's telling you, you shouldn't punish the upright because of their uprightness, why would God punish the righteous for seven years of a horrible terror? Number four reason why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, the 24 elders of the book of Revelation introduced in Revelation chapter five. Elders in the Greek is... The word where we get presbyters, overseers. Now why is that important? If you study the Levitical law and the book of 1 Chronicles, you'll see that especially when they dedicated the first temple, there were so many priests, there were thousands of priests in those days that not all of them could fit into the temple. To inaugurate the temple, dedicate the temple, and also to maintain the temple so what they did was they divided the thousands of priests into this is very imp important they divided the thousands of priests 
into 24 subgroups. And every subgroup had its own elder, its own overseer, its own presbyter, which is the same word used in Revelation when it says the 24 presbyters. Why is that important? The Bible says in Revelation 5 that Christ has redeemed us unto our God by His blood and has made us kings and priests unto our God and unto our Savior. And we've been made kings and priests. We have a priesthood now um, wherein we minister to God. The Bible says we are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. The Bible says He has made us priests unto our God and Savior. So you are a priest, I am a priest to God. What does a priest do? We minister to God and we minister to the people on behalf of God. Because we're priests, this allows us to make a comparison to that first temple dedication and what's happening or what will happen in, in heaven after the rapture of the church. The 24 elders, I always disconnected it. I never made sense of it till I read it this week. The 24 elders, the reason why he chose the number 24 was not by accident. It was in reference to 1 Chronicles, I think it's 1 Chronicles chapter 14, when they divided the priests into 24 subsections and had elders overseeing the priest. And those 24 would live in the temple and minister the, the tasks of the temple on behalf of the thousands of priests and all the people. In the same vein, these 24 elders are 24 representatives that represent the millions upon millions upon millions of royal priesthoods that have been established by the blood of Jesus Christ. So actually, you can see indirectly from Revelation 4 to Revelation 19, as you, I think the elders are mentioned six or seven times. Those elders are actually representations, or not representations, representatives of the millions upon millions upon billions of redeemed believers that will be in heaven throughout that time of the great tribulation. They're not 24 angels, they're not 24 beings, they are 24 people that God will hand select that will represent the millions and billions of redeemed, blood-bought Christian believers that have been raptured, have gone through the judgment seat of Christ, have had and, and, and have um, been given, because the Bible says their, ro their robes are white, like, are, are white, as no launderer on earth can launder them, representing the redeemed. They're going to represent all the redeemed, all the redeemed masses throughout the ages. Number five, reason why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is the rapture is signless. So if you believe in a post-tribulation rapture, the <clears throat> tribulation has signs to them. You're going to know when you're in the great tribulation, there's going to be a mark of the beast. And you'll be able to tell from the implementation of this mark of the beast three and a half years from then. You'll be able to pretty much count down the days and know exactly when. You'd be able to put a day and a time to when Jesus Christ returns. But the Bible says the day of the Lord is as a thief in the night. No man knows the day or the hour. The scripture says as a thief comes in the night and the master of the house does not know when he is coming. So it is with, with the coming of the Son of God. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the present heavens will be consumed. The scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5, but the day of the Lord will be as a thief in the night. What's a thief do? He comes at an unexpected time, at an unexpected hour. 
And so if it was post-tribulation, we'd be able to count the day, the, we'd be able to count every single second down until Jesus' return. But the rapture and the coming of Christ that first time to capture his church is signless. Only the pre-tribulation doctrine allows for this. Number six, the teaching of the rapture brings comfort. If I told you you're going to go through seven years of the worst, hellish, harshest <coughs> days that you've ever experienced that no human in history has experienced, how good are you going to feel? Not going to feel very good doesn't bring much comfort. G, uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18, finishes words when he talks about the rapture. He says, therefore comfort one another with these words. The fact of a rapture, pre-tribulation rapture, brings comfort. It shows us that we're not going to have to go through the wrath of God. We're not going to have to go through the punishment of God against the deeds of the wicked. Why would God punish His... I, I just That's the thing that irritates me with the whole post-trib... Uh, mentality and the whole post-trib doctrine is that it allows for a twisted perversion of God's character he's not twisted he's not a child abuser he's not slapping his kids he's he's not going to pour out his judgment on people who the bible says in first john 3 we have passed from judgment to life it does not add up at all so those are six reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I'm going to finish off with this because I thought this was an interesting, an interesting question uh, that I've had asked before. What about children? What about children in the rapture? See, horror and coffee comes out again. And his, his next point of argument, which is an amazing point, this point of argument has, has converted so many people over the ages. I've studied this for 25 years, so I must be right. It doesn't matter if you study this for 100 years. I can try, I, I can literally try and do an oil change on my car. I've never studied how to do it. I can try as long as I, I, can, I can try and figure it out. I can do it for 40 hours, 50 hours. And just break my brain trying to figure it all out. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Just because I've done something for a long time doesn't mean I'm experienced at it. You understand? Because I still don't know how to do an oil change. I didn't say I must be right. Well, the way you're talking, you're pretty much, you're pretty much crapping on anybody that doesn't agree with you. So, you don't have to say it. Sometimes things are ingrained within your full statements question final question and I have more questions that maybe I'll do a separate broadcast for but um, next question that I find very interesting that is gonna is gonna help a lot of people today is what about children in the rapture what about children in the rapture View, there's three different viewpoints on this. Number one viewpoint is no children will be raptured. Only believers, only those that have saving faith will be raptured. And the reason why they say that is, the reason why he say that is that in Noah's day, God, when he sent the flood on the world of the ungodly, even the children of the ungodly ended up perishing in that flood, in the water. And so they say that all children 
because they don't have saving faith, they haven't been born again, they haven't come to a point of decision, infants and children, that they're all... I don't hold to that, because first and foremost, the scripture is very clear. Uh, Well, I'll get into that. So that's viewpoint number one. Viewpoint number two is... All infants or children will be raptured, regardless of the beliefs of their family or their parents or whatnot. If you're under a certain age, you're automatically made the rapture. Although I agree that an infant or a child that dies ahead of their time, that dies early, they, they will make heaven because they haven't reached the point of accountability. And the Bible has very many scriptures that agree with that, with this statement. And I can get through them, but that's not the purpose of this broadcast. Although a child or an infant that dies ahead of the age of accountability is like by default making heaven, death and the rapture are two different things. Dying and being taken up in the rapture are two different things. And so that leads me to viewpoint number three, which is the viewpoint that I hold to, is that infants and children of believing parents and believing families will be taken up in the rapture. Why do I believe that? Noah, he was found blameless in the eyes of the Lord, but his children and his family was saved. And they got preserved from the, world, uh, from the flood that came on the world of the ungodly. Number two, Lot's daughters were saved from wrath by virtue of his, uh, of his righteousness before God. In Israel... When the judgment came on the land of Egypt, everyone, every house that had blood on the doorposts and the lintel, they were preserved and their children were preserved. Remember, the Bible says every um, house that doesn't have the blood, the firstborn of that house ended up dying. And ended up getting struck, struck down by the death angel. But everyone who had blood on the door whether their children agreed with what they were doing or not. The Bible says that they were spared from death. Another reason why is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 says, children are set apart. Uh, they're set apart for Christ. Children are set apart, sanctified by believing parents for Christ. Sanctified through the faith of their parents for Christ. So because he's not at the age of accountability, my child right now, and even my baby in the womb, my mother's womb, uh, my, my wife's womb, because of the faith of us, because we're in covenant with God, they end up uh, having that kind of covenant benefit until the age of accountability in which they'll have to decide for themselves. Another reason why I believe this is Ephesians 6 says, as parents, we are to train up our children in the admonition of the Lord. We have a duty to train up a child in the way he should go. We have a duty as believers. The Bible says, he that cares not for his own household, he is worse than an infidel. And so if Christ raptured me up, but my child remained on the earth, I would not be able to fulfill my covenant duty as a believer to train up my child in the way that he should go. I would be unable to, to, um, to take care of my own household. I'd, I would be in violation of God's commandment. So as such, I really strongly believe that if you are born again 
and you have children that are less than the age of accountability. I'm not going to give an age for accountability. I don't know what it is. I think it's different for different people and different children because different children have different abilities to comprehend and understand certain things. But if your child is before the age of accountability and you're worrying if the rapture happens, what am I going to do? You've even made plans and you've contacted unsaved relatives and say, hey, when I go, would you... <laughs> you, you don't have to do that. They're going to... I strongly believe that they're going to... Um, they're going to be caught up with you. And so we'll meet the Lord in the air together. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you. And until next time.